Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I hope this finds you doing well wherever you are in the world. I hope you're staying healthy and safe uh, as much as possible. We know that uh, coronavirus cases keep going up in many parts of the country and uh, people are going back to work, people are going on vacation. And so whatever you're up to and wherever you're at in the world, I hope that you're doing well and staying safe. Uh, Here at Mission Hills, we are still... Uh, for the most part on lockdown, we're still doing Zoom on Sunday mornings at 10, on Wednesday nights for the next couple of weeks at 7. In a few weeks, mid-July, we're going to do a social distance hang. So if you're in Los Angeles, we're going to have a outdoor party, wear a mask, bring your own drinks, and at least we'll get to see each other from a distance. And uh, don't hug me, okay? <laughs> So uh, so we have that to look forward to in July, and we just keep hoping that uh, the conditions get better so that we can go back to um, you know our regularly scheduled programming and lives and school, all that stuff as summer is already upon us, and it's, it's almost July. That's really hard to imagine. Um, day to day, I have no idea what day it is, so you know that's just uh, the way it is. So Maybe you're still living that kind of life. Uh, I woke up on Sunday morning and thought it was Tuesday. So that's how confused I am. So I hope you're finding some space still to um, to have some time to rest, to give yourself some grace, and uh, to remind yourself that we're all going through so much. And um, as much as we want to be active in um, what's going on in our society, a lot of the uh, racial justice and activism it's also so important to take time for yourself to to rest and to uh, recharge and to refuel and um, take care of yourself. So I hope you are finding some moments to take care of yourself. And thank you all so much for such a great Pride Sunday last week for sending in your videos. If you haven't seen the video yet, you can watch that on the, the website or you can find it on YouTube of what Pride means to us at Mission Hills. And it was just a great Sunday uh, to spend together, even though it was on Zoom, so it was a little different. Um, but we just uh, keep rolling along. Today is the fourth Sunday after Pentecost. It is June, the Sunday of June twenty eighth, and I wanted to do something a little bit different uh, for the podcast this week. Usually, I I follow the lectionary. Usually, I follow. Um, I write out my thoughts through the week, and um, but I don't do. I don't manuscript my sermons. I usually have notes. I have quotes, obviously, and those that you have listened before. Um, but it's a bit more of a free flowing conversation. This week, um, I am not using the lectionary, and I completely wrote out my manuscript. So very different. Uh, than what I'm used to doing, but I wanted to just give it a try and see what it was like. I needed to to get some of my thoughts out about um, all of the the racial violence and and policing, and really kind of break down my thinking uh, from a Christian uh, perspective and what uh, an ethic of Jesus would look like in 2020, um, and really just propose that for our conversation this coming Sunday on June 28th. So if this is completely boring, uh, I'm about to read this. If this is completely boring, I won't do it again. Just let me know. And uh, we'll we'll throw this in the recycling bin of sermons. So, so I will just start reading this. Let's begin with a quote from St. Francis of Assisi. Before you speak of peace, 
you must first have it in your heart. We have been called to heal wounds, to unite what has fallen apart, and to bring home any who have lost their way. The United States is a violent totalism. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann has often said, the first prophetic task is to be clear on the force and illegitimacy of the totalism. Totalism for Brueggemann is terminology for the normalization of a military-industrial complex, both in the ancient world of the biblical text and our market-driven economy today. Jesus falls squarely into the prophetic tradition that challenges the totalism of empire. The only reasonable response for Christians today is to dismantle U.S. totalism, which, at the very least, would defund the police, abolish prisons, and defund the military. In the wake of the police murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Rayshard Brooks, and rampant police brutality across the nation, there have been repeated calls, not only from activists, but politicians and local officials, to defund the police. There are several debates on how to go about this and to completely reimagine policing, but before we think about solutions, we have to acknowledge the normalization of this particular totalism within our society as part of a larger industry of violence. Small examples of the overwhelming policing totalism are things like Los Angeles's $3.1 billion in annual police spending, which is 17.6% of the total city budget, and the NYPD's staggering $6 billion budget, which is 6% of its total city budget. And while these statistics can be disturbing, they do not exist as anomalies, but emblematic of a violent nation in hundreds of years of its evolving totalism. Our nation was crafted from a violent system of slavery and genocide of Native Americans. And after slavery's abolishment in 1865, our nation created new systems of violence, beginning with the 13th Amendment to perpetuate this initial totalism. From one total totalism, new avenues of violence emerged, including lynching, Jim Crow, the police, mass incarceration, and the war economy. If we are going to work towards peace, we have to first be honest that the recent horrors of police violence are part of the totalism of American violence. Let's look briefly at the violence of American totalism in policing, mass incarceration, and the war economy. First, policing. There are plenty of problematic aspects of policing, from its complicated emergence from slave patrols in the racialized infrastructure to its truly jaw-dropping militarization over the past 30 years. The police that we see today in armored vehicles shooting tear gas and rubber bullets into crowds is a relatively new phenomenon that can partially trace its roots to Section 1033 program of the 1990s. Section 1033 gave the Department of Defense the ability to send military equipment to police departments across the country, which is how small towns like Waterton, Connecticut, population of 22,000, acquired a $700,000 mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicle designed to protect against roadside bombs for the discount price of $2,800. It will come as no surprise that a heavily armed policing system produces higher levels of violence when compared to other developed nations. Prison policy initiative data from 2017 shows that U.S. police killed 1,099 people compared to Canada's 36 and England and Wales's 3. 
In December of 2019 alone, the U.S. police killed 110 people in just one month. By contrast, England and Wales had only 55 fatal police shootings from 1990 to 2014. The use of force policies like allowing chokeholds in Minneapolis until recently and no-knock warrants, which is still legal in 13 states, encourage senseless violence by our police. The police system is armed by our military, and it's incredibly violent. And of course, racism runs through all of American totalism, and this includes our entire policing system, not just isolated events like the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and others. Within the comparatively extreme violence of American police that kills, on average, a thousand civilians a year, black men are two and a half times more likely than white men to be killed by police. In 2019, the Washington Post found that black Americans account for 13% of the population, but 25% of police shooting victims. Perpetuating this violence is the near-complete police immunity in which 99% of officers involved in fatal shootings do not receive charges. Studies show that police disproportionately stop black drivers and disproportionately search them after stopping them, despite studies showing police consistently find less contraband. A 2020 Stanford study demonstrated that of 100 million traffic stops by police departments nationwide, black drivers were much more likely to be pulled over than white drivers based on less evidence of wrongdoing. In 2016, 90% of the people that were stopped and frisked by New York police were people of color, 90%. And at the height of New York's stop and frisk policy in 2011, the police stopped 685,000 citizens, 685,000 more than three out of every four were completely innocent. The racism within the system is undeniable, and it's intentional. And the only way to address it is to come to terms that it is currently serving its intended function, which is, to dem- which is domestic subjugation and oppression of minority groups. All right. Prisons. The totalism of American violence is, the normal- is normalized in our modern prison system. The U.S. has roughly 4% of the world's total population and 20% of the world's prison population. Since 1972, the U.S. prison population went from 192,000 to 2.3 million people. If you haven't seen a graph of this, it's shocking. Not surprisingly, those incarcerated are disproportionately disproportionately black and brown. Black Americans constitute 40% of the entire prison population. Again, despite only being 13% of our nation's population. In Louisiana, one out of every seven minority adults are either in prison, serving probation, or out on parole. The violence of the prison system is also disproportionately impacting the LGBTQ community. Nearly 16% of trans people have been incarcerated, compared to the 2.7% of U.S. adults. In 13 to 15% of young people in detention identify as LGBTQ+. These statistics speak nothing of the brutality of the conditions, the violence, and the for-profit structure within many of Americans' prisons. A federal investigation in 2019 into Alabama's prisons discovered severe and systemic and exacerbated violations of prisoners' Eighth Amendment rights. According to the Prison Policy Initiative, quote, the U.S. has been engaged in a globally unprecedented experiment to make every part of its criminal justice system more expansive and more punitive. For the past 40 years, mass incarceration has been the U.S.'s response to crime, which is another aspect of the violence of American totalism. 
All right, the war economy, military spending, and arms dealing. The magnitude of American violence can be seen in its war economy. The U.S. military spends more than the next 10 highest defense spending nations combined. And it would only require, only require, an additional $400 billion annually to outspend all 148 nations on Earth combined. The budget was a staggering $730 billion in 2019, which accounted for more than 53% of all U.S. discretionary spending. Additional aspects of the militarized budget in 2019, including things like the U.S. Customs and Border Protection and U.S. Immigration Customs Enforcement, added $24 billion in spending, which is more than the budgets for Head Start, FEMA, and the EPA. When added together, 64% of the U.S. annual discretionary budget is spent on the military, incarceration, immigration, and policing, 64%. So the next time someone argues with you about the expense of universal health care, early childhood education, ending child poverty, or homelessness, just remind them that the United States, as of 2019, has already spent $6.4 trillion on the war on terror, while taking the lives of 801,000 people, including 335 thousand innocent civilians, according to a study from Brown University in 2019. Civilian casualty numbers in war are often not considered in the conversation on war and violence, but according to the New York Times, civilian threats in recent wars were so substantial. One million in North Korea, hundreds of thousands in South Korea, and two hundred dollars to $400,000 in the war in Vietnam. In the wars in the 1990s, civilian death constituted between 75 and 90 percent of all war deaths. In the wars of the 1990s, I'll say that again, civilian deaths constituted between 75% or 90% of all war deaths. And the U.S. doesn't just spend an ungodly amount of money on violence and war. Its totalism is completely dependent on profiting from a war economy. According to the U.S. State Department in 2020, the global arms trade is a $200 billion business and the U.S. controls almost 80% of it. The U.S. exported four more times, four times more weapons around the world than the next nine countries combined. Defense contracting is also an important component of American totalism. In 2017, weapon sales from the top 100 defense companies totaled $398.2 billion. The top companies, you guessed it, American. Lockheed Martin, Boeing, Raytheon. Killing people is profitable and the U.S. is king. Okay, after the atomic bomb was dropped in uh, Hiroshima, President Harry Truman wrote, quote, We thank God that it, the bomb, has come to us, and we pray that he, God, may guide it to use it in his ways and for his purposes. So this is by no means an exhaustive list of American violence, which has perpetrated unknown horrors, throughout the world, but this is simply a window to understand the concept of its particular totalism as a violent empire, and one that Jesus would be utterly opposed to. When thinking about the violence of our nation from a Christian perspective, we must first be honest that it is a complete severance from the life of the poor, peacemaking Jewish rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. Franciscan priest Richard Rohr, says, we can argue doctrinally about many aspects of Jesus's life 
and teaching. But we cannot say that he was not a poor man or that he did not favor the perspective from the bottom as a privileged viewpoint. All other arguments about Jesus must deal with this overwhelming truth. Okay, the second task. The second task of the prophetic imagination is that we have to pronounce the truth about the force of the totalism that contradicts the purpose of God. Again, Walter Brueggemann. So the question is, what does an ethic of Jesus have to say about the violence of American totalism in 2020? It's important to remember that this violence is systemic, and the purpose of pronouncing the truth about totalism from a Christian perspective is not an effort to cast blame. Okay, It's about recognizing its power in our cooperation in its denomination. Uh, uh, domination. Catholic writer Henry Nouwen wrote, the wounds that need... The wounds and need that lie behind the wars we condemn are the wounds and needs we share with the whole human race. So now that we've addressed the U.S. as a totalism, it's incumbent on Christians to develop and practice an ethic of peace and nonviolence amid this totalism. We are fortunate that this is not a new endeavor in the Christian imagination, as people for centuries have found the social Christ as a distinct challenge to totalism in their work towards peace in human flourishing. Quote, Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. Jesus in Mark 1.15. Okay, so my ethics professor, the late Glenn Stassen, wrote extensively on the ethics of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, said this, When we look for God's will revealed in Jesus— We find a specific social vision embedded in concrete practices, delivering the poor from poverty, opposing those who oppress the weak, ending violence, and welcoming outcasts into community. Stassen was also a staunch anti-war advocate and worked tirelessly for nuclear disarmament through his methodology called Just Peacemaking. In a statement to the rising tide of violence in 2004, 200 Christian theologians and ethicists, including Stassen, Walter Brueggemann, Miroslav Volf, claimed this, Christ commits Christians to a strong presumption against war, end quote. And so while I agree with their, with their, their thesis, I don't think presumption is effective enough language. It's safe to say, I think, uh, Jesus, who succumbed nonviolently to his arrest and death at the order of empire, would not co-sign our war declarations. So while this is an important statement for all Christians to consider, and I think uh, sign on board for, it's a starting point from which we can develop a more clear declaration. Here's my edit. Quote, Christ commits Christians to a strong resistance to all forms of violence. Christ commits Christians to a strong resistance to all forms of violence. Brueggemann's prophetic task calls for truth against totalism and for practices for the purposes of God. So the next obvious question is, what are the purposes of of God found in Jesus? As we understand the life of Jesus, his primary concerns, in short, were this, restoring the status and lives of the oppressed and outcast, and creating conditions for all humans to flourish and discover life. Even shorter, this— Repent from sin, death, and trust in the good news, life. Paul reminds us that Jesus is, quote, the image of the invisible God, 
And our wisdom tradition teaches us that Jesus's purposes are God's purposes. So we can conclude that the Christian life in any age should commit itself against violence that robs human flourishing and commit two acts of resistance and peace work that create opportunities for life, both human and ecological. The purposes of God are a celebration of all life. Okay, so let's look at the word resistance. In Stassen's book, A Thicker Jesus, he writes, quote, compassion and confrontation are not opposites, but what is need for healing. Uh, defunding for me, defunding me for me, American totalism aligns with the ethic of Jesus of Nazareth because it is a path of compassionate and humble confrontation. There is a clear no and a humble yes. Jesus was socially engaged against the forces of death and fiercely compassionate for the flourishing of life. An ethic of peacemaking must be both. Jesus' life and call to the disciples charts a novel path for human flourishing by challenging totalism through nonviolent actions from a deep well of spiritual peace, humility, and compassion. When thinking about resistance, Henry Nouwen writes, resistance requires the humble confession that we are partners in the evil that we seek to resist. Jesus' life, as we know it in the gospel, is full of practices of peace, love, healing, and liberation. When Jesus announces his ministry in Luke, it's about freedom for the oppressed. In Matthew, Jesus flips the societal honor system by announcing it to the meek, the persecuted, the pure, the depressed, and the mourning. Jesus welcomed the outsider and ate with the despised. Blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are the poor, he proclaimed. And these statements from Jesus were not merely affirmations, but incarnational declarations from God for people and against the systems and structures of shame. The theologian Gustavo Gutierrez wrote, standing in solidarity with the poor began to mean taking a stand against inhumane poverty. In even days before Jesus' violent execution at the hands of totalism, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as a nonviolent political protest to the brutality of Rome, humbly announcing himself as the Messiah of peace. Of course, no one has to you know, ascribe to a Christian faith to practice an ethic of nonviolent resistance, but it's a critical component of humble peacemaking for Christians in the way of Christ in the world. All right, let's, let's close by taking a look at the phrase, the work of the people. Liturgy, as it's known in churches, simply means the work of the people. Whenever we contemplate the ethics of this way of living, we must recognize that we are joining the communion of saints and we are not alone. The liturgy of the church of this kind of peacemaking must be a liturgy in the street. While Christian communities recognize God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the peacemaking church also sees Christ in the world universally. Everything is Christ-soaked, as Richard Rohr has often said. The community of Christ, therefore, does not hate an enemy, because the other is Christ in the very sight of our salvation. To know God is to do justice, and to be at peace with God is to be at peace with the world. Christian community is healed by God in our search for God in the world through peace and justice. So from a Christian perspective, 
this is inherently a communal effort rather than a DIY form of performative social activism. The body of Christ is called to love the world, heal the oppressed, and grieve with the brokenhearted. This is the true work of the people and the continued work of Christ in community. Of course, we do not presume the U.S. to immediately halt practices of police brutality, mass incarceration, and the war economy, but the body of Christ must be clear that these uses of violence stand against the mission of Christ to bring life for those oppressed by its totalism. To conclude this this exploration by reflecting on Brueggemann's initial statement, a prophetic task of the church today would be, at the very least, to humbly organize toward dismantling violent systems of policing, mass incarceration, and the war economy in the United States. So church, may our liturgy bring justice. May our liturgy bring healing. And may our liturgy bring love by dismantling the forces of death that we are so often complicit in. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Amen.